story, then you can go back and look at the learning objectives and see which parts we refer to. It's a bit of an integrated whole for what we're going to do today, but these certainly are the learning objectives that we're going to address along the way. Now, in terms of recommended reading, uh, the textbook, Roads and Bell, it's got a whole chapter on this sort of stuff. But also, don't forget the other textbook, Golan. It's got some excellent summary chapters. So it's a pharmacology book, yes. But before you get to the pharmacology, they give you a really nice summary of all the physiology in that system before they talk about the pharmacology. So it's also a very useful book to take a look through the initial parts of those chapters. The abbreviations we're going to use, I've just put them up on the slides so that when you're looking over this, you can instantly recognize them. We're going to be talking a lot about membrane potentials. Now, the first thing to say about a membrane potential is it's just a separation of charge, a charge difference between one area and the other. And what we're referring to is the charge difference between the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell. So that's all we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at charged particles. Up until now, I think Dr. Powell has looked at non-charged particles, but we're going to look at what the difference makes to have these particles with a positive or a negative charge, because we're now going to worry about electrical driving forces. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about an equilibrium potential. That's pretty self-explanatory. It's the potential at which there is full equilibrium of that ion, meaning there's no net flux. And that's really where we're going to start our story, is starting to look at what an equilibrium potential is, and how an equilibrium potential is formed. And then we're going to look at driving force, uh, because something won't move without a force being exerted upon it. Driving force is the electrical force that's exerted on a charged particle. But that particle needs something else in order for it to flow. It needs a driving force, and what else does it need? Absolutely. It needs what we call a conductance. It needs a hole for it to go through. So the two things that are vital for a current to flow is one, a driving force, a voltage, and the second thing, a route through which it can flow, a channel. And the channels we usually think of as having a conductance, and that's just a measure of the ease of flux. It's almost the reciprocal of resistance. You're very used to dealing with resistance, which is a resistance to flux. Conductance is an ease of flux, so it's an index of the ease of flux. So you're going to hear a lot about conductance, and essentially that's... Just think of it like the more channels you've got for that ion, the bigger the conductance is going to be. More channels, a bigger ease of flux. Or if the channels are more open, a bigger ease of flux. If the channels are all closed, not so much conductance, not so much ease of flow. So let's take this in a stepwise kind of fashion. These are the concepts I hope you already have some clue about. So Ohm's law, the word permeability, we're going to talk a lot about diffusion or Nernst potentials. It's the same thing as an equilibrium potential. So there's three terms that are equivalent. Nernst, equilibrium potential, or whatever the other one is, diffusion potential, all refer to the same thing. Conductance, we've already talked about. A brief note on this. The, the, I only put this on because uh, we're not going to look at currents so much. Okay, we're not going to formally characterize currents because currents are very complex. What I want to say about this is that in a cell that's active and dynamic, not only is there a very strong change in the conductance that occurs, channels are opening and closing, but the voltage driving force is also dynamically changing. And that means we've got two very dynamic variables that lead to a complex set 
of currents being expressed. So it's not so easy to think about the current because of the dynamic change that occurs both in conductance and voltage as a cell is undergoing an action potential. But what we will talk about for sure is what sort of steady state currents, you know, if we have a stable voltage, what type of current, and a stable conductance, what type of current might flow. Conductance does uh, have a term, it's Siemens, so one amp flowing for one volt of force is one Siemens, so we can quantify precisely how much conductance there is <coughs> with these units. Okay, so those are just some background things to think about. Before we start, now I'm going to push the button and hope there's a timer on here, otherwise I close you all out. Okay, I want to just try this question first of all to see where we are before we even begin. Because what I'm hoping is this is the sort of thing you might be able to answer by the time we get to the end of the two hours. Okay, so let's see what your gut feeling is here. Sodium, potassium, ATP is an error, potassium channel blocker. Okay, let's come to that at the end. There are two principles we must never forget, even though we frequently and commonly do, uh, but I'm going to mention what they are. And I'm also going to just sort of orientate us to what we're thinking about. In any solution, any solution, any biological solution, there's what we call charge equivalence. For every positive ion, there's an anion. There's an equal amount. Therefore, any solution is electroneutral. It doesn't have any more cations and anions or vice versa. There's electron neutrality. Things come as salts. They dissolve, they dissociate. So we've always got one cation for one anion. Even within the cell, in terms of the bulk of the cell, the story is true. If we were to draw the fluid out of a cell, usually there's roughly charge equivalents. Now where that story breaks down is when we allow the flow of charge and we filter that charge, so we're only allowing a specific charge to flow, then we set up a charge gradient. And that's what the cell membrane is doing. It has channels that allow specific flavors of charge to move, either positive or negative. And by only allowing the positive or negative to move, we can set up a charge disparity in the local environment. So if we were to sample the fluid here, electroneutral. Sample the fluid here, probably more or less electroneutral. But the real charge separation occurs in a really narrow band across that membrane where channels are allowing one specific type of charge. They might only allow sodium to flow 
where they might not allow potassium to flow. Now we have charge disparity. And if we have set up charge disparity, we set up a, a voltage. We set up a potential difference in charge. So the first thing to say is there's electron neutrality in all solutions. Now, commonly today, I'm going to be showing you gradients, and we're going to be talking about potassium or sodium. That doesn't mean to say that's only that. I'm neglecting to mention all the other ions that are there that balance it out. Okay, So for convenience, I don't clutter up the diagrams with all the ions. I just look at the one that we're specifically looking at. So if I'm going to be talking about a potassium gradient, remember there are counter anions in there as well for each potassium. The second thing is I'm going to be talking a lot about fluxes. And it's going to sound as if there's a lot of flux going on. And in some regards, there is a lot of flux. But what we have to remember is the degree of flux is minute compared to the total mass of available iron, which means that even with flux that we're talking of, it doesn't actually change the standing concentration gradients. So although I'm going to be talking about potassium leaving the cell, it's not that the potassium concentration drops in the cell. It's still maintained by the sodium-potassium ATPase by pumping more potassium back in to compensate for that leak. So we really think of the concentrations as being a steady state, despite the fact I'm going to be talking about flux between the compartments. So those are the two crucial things. Charge equivalents in all solutions. And secondly, the fluxes I'm talking about, they're very significant electrically, but they're not particularly significant in terms of changing the chemical potential. They don't change the concentration gradient. So those are the two core concepts. Look, I even added a slide that said what I just said. Take note of that. I don't often do it. So what we're going to start with is the rest membrane potential. Basically, the voltage that exists across the membrane at rest in a cell that ain't doing anything, that's just sitting there. And before we start, I always like to sort of give you the goal, which is to understand that what does determine the rest membrane potential? Basically, it's the ion with the biggest conductance at rest. That's what determines what the rest membrane potential is going to be. <coughs> now, it's no good just having a huge conductance. You also have to have a concentration gradient, because clearly you ain't going to get charge flow and separation of charge unless there's a gradient to drive a flow. So the two things we need is a concentration gradient for that ion and a large conductance. We got those two things, they will determine the membrane potential. So that's the two crucial things we need to bear in mind. Now, by the end of this lecture, what I'm hoping you understand is why some cells maybe have a rest membrane potential of minus 50 millivolts, and some cells maybe have a rest membrane potential of minus 80 millivolts, because there's a good reason for that. And also, the cells I used to work on, because I am an electrophysiologist, used to have a potential of 20, 30, 40 positive millivolts, which is very unusual, but you can get cells that have positive membrane potentials. And again, you should understand by the end of this how that might come to exist. So let's start very simply and build our way up. We're going to start with the simplest model possible. Here we've got a two-chambered system. We've got a whole bunch of electrolytes on the left, nothing on the right. So you can see here all the red dots are sodium ions, 
There's charge equivalents, which means there's the same amount of positive and negative charges. So if I were to stick two electrodes into chamber one, I wouldn't detect a membrane potential. I wouldn't detect a potential difference between the two electrodes. If I were to stick an electrode in compartment one and compartment two, I also wouldn't, crucially, detect a potential difference. There is no separation of charge. Because there's charge equivalents on the left and charge equivalents on the right, there is no potential. Don't be fooled into thinking, oh, because there's charges here and no charges here, there's a potential difference. It's not that. It's the fact that there should be a differentiation. There should be an accumulation of a single type of charge in one place versus the other in order to detect a potential. So what we're going to do, of course, is we are going to diagram here this arrow, this vector, if you like. It demonstrates the chemical potential. What would happen based upon concentration gradients is that sodium would flow from chamber one into chamber two. So that's pretty much the Van Hoff equation, which probably Dr. Powell did. Simple osmosis flows down a concentration gradient. But additionally, what we're going to do now is we're not going to care about the charge. We're going to stick an electrode in compartment one. We're going to stick an electrode in compartment two. And we're going to look for the development of any charge separation between these two compartments. Now, at the moment, there is no charge separation. We have charge equivalents on the left, and we have charge equivalents on the right. No charge here, and there's no net charge here. So no potential difference. But crucially, what we are going to do is we're going to stick a sodium channel in here, a channel that specifically and only allows passage of sodium ions. It's not going to allow the passage of anything else. Now, that's going to give us the conductance and the route for one positive charge to move through that channel. So let's open that channel. What we do is we open it up. We now increase the conductance for sodium. We've now got an ease of flow for sodium. That's good because we have an ease of flow. We have a conductance. And we also have a driving force. In this case, it's the chemical driving force from a high concentration to a low concentration. So of course, what's going to happen? That's easy to predict. Our sodium ion will move from compartment one into compartment two. Now, there it is. There is the first detection of a voltage. We now have charge separation. We've now got a net positive charge in compartment two and a net negative charge because of the counter anions back in compartment one. So now, the voltmeter would detect a very minute voltage because it's one ion that's flowed. And think about that. Compartment two is going to be positive compared to compartment one, yeah? Now, what do you think that means in terms of flux of sodium? The positive sodium ions, they don't quite want to flow as easily because this environment is positive and positive repels positive. Now, it's not a very strong repulsive force because it's only one ion. But we do have this very small repulsive force that is going to prevent further sodium influx. But the crucial point is, look, there's still far more energy in the chemical gradient than there is in the electrical gradient at this point. So we can fast forward a little bit. We'll find, okay, we do still have a net flux. Another sodium ion flows down. And as you notice, now that we've got two sodium ions, this electrical repulsion gets bigger. 
because we've now separated more charge out. So there's even more positive charge in chamber two, and that means a bigger repulsive force. Well, you can get the picture. As I allow more and more sodium ions to flow, that repulsive force gets bigger and bigger and bigger until, boom, here's the magic moment. Equilibration occurs. We still have a chemical gradient, and we still have a chemical driving force for the ion to flow left to right, chamber one to chamber two. But we now have built up sufficient electropositivity in chamber two to resist any further flow of sodium down that concentration gradient. In fact, what we now have is no vectorial flow. Sodium is still flowing, but the amount of sodium that flows compartment one to compartment two is exactly equivalent to the amount of sodium that flows from compartment two back to compartment one, and now the net flux is zero. So it's not that flux stops, but net flux becomes zero. Now the crucial part is, and here's the very crucial part, in terms of electrical forces, you don't need much of these ions to flow to set up that strong electrical gradient in order to get to equilibrium. We still have a massive chemical gradient for our ion to flow C1 to C2. But only a few charges flowing down there generate enough electropositivity to bring the thing into equilibrium. Now, what that's telling you is, of course, electrical forces are way more powerful than chemical forces in driving flux. Only a few charges can resist this huge chemical gradient and bring the whole thing to a net flux of zero. So that's it. That's how we form a membrane potential. Because now we're going to record some value with our voltmeter, and that's our membrane potential, based upon the fact that we have a sodium conductance and a sodium gradient. Now we automatically reach this equilibrium. It's a self-generating potential, and now it automatically goes to equilibrium. And we stay there, we stay stable, steady state, under those conditions. Now the crucial part is, what if we want to put a value on that? You know, these are arbitrary units I've thrown up here. 10 down to 6, 0 to minus 6, or whatever it is. Arbitrary units just to illustrate the point. What if I wanted to find out, for a known concentration gradient, how many millivolts of force would be generated by that iron flowing and then reaching equilibrium. And so that's what the Nernst potential is all about. It's putting a value on the amount of electrical energy that balances that chemical gradient. So let's make a start on this uh, equilibrium potential. So here is the Nernst equation. We're going to do that next. And basically what it's doing is it's saying to you, for a known concentration gradient, this is the amount of millivolts that give you a net flux of zero. It's the electrical force that is equal and opposite to the chemical gradient for a given and known chemical uh, potential difference between two compartments. Or another way of thinking of it is, it's the electrical force that causes net flux to be zero under a standing gradient. Now, the big assumption in the Nernst equation is that this is a single ion species, and we're only going to think about a single ion species at this point. 
We're not going to think about all of the different ions that may or may not be flowing. So let's take a look. Let's start with a very easy premise here, which is that the electrochemical gradient is the sum of two things, a blue thing and a pink thing. And the blue thing represents the chemical stuff, and the pink thing represents the electrical stuff. Makes sense. Electrochemical sum the factors that determine the chemical gradient, sum the factors that determine the electrical gradient, add them together, and you've got the electrochemical gradient. Now, it's nowhere near as complex as it first looks. So, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to define this as we did a second ago. Remember what I said to you is, what is the membrane potential when net flux is zero? So, let's start out with that. Let's say that the chemical gradient is equal and opposite to the electrical gradient, meaning that the force in the chemical gradient is being opposed by the force in the electrical gradient. And we can do that, of course, just by saying that the blue thing is equal and opposite to the pink thing. Okay. So we know now that if the blue thing is equal and opposite to the pink thing, net flux is zero. We will not have flux of the ion if those two things are equal in magnitude but opposite in polarity. Now let's take a look at what these pink things and blue things are. We don't need to worry about anything that's got a letter on it because it's a constant. So Z is the valency of the ion. F is Faraday's constant. R and T are the gas constant and temperature in Kelvin. Basically, you can forget they're there because you can't do anything with those. They're constants. Um, so what are the terms that actually we're looking at? What does this really reduce to? It basically says it's the difference between the charge inside the cell and the charge outside the cell and the concentration inside the cell and the concentration outside the cell. It's balancing just the charge differential with the chemical differential. That's all it's doing. And if the charge differential is equal and opposite to the chemical differential, then there's no net flux because both of these things are equal in magnitude but opposite in direction. Now, we can make another shorthand here because the difference between the charge inside a cell and the charge outside a cell is what we call the membrane potential or the equilibrium potential in this case. So the equilibrium potential is equal to the opposite sign on the chemical potential. Now what we can do is we can take our ZF across and now you can see here basically what we're saying is in order to calculate the membrane potential for a single ion species under these very specific conditions all we need to know is the chemical gradient that exists. If we know the chemical gradient we can calculate the amount of electrical energy that's required to give us a net flux of zero and prevent flux of that ion down its chemical gradient. So let's do that. Let's simplify it even further before we do that, though. We're going to take RT over F, and we're going to condense it down into a useful form, and we're going to say it's minus 60 millivolts. Now, we do that at 29.5 degrees centigrade. So if we were to take the temperature at 29.5 degrees centigrade, the RT over F reduces to 60. Why do we choose 29.5 degrees centigrade? To give us a round number of 60. We don't want nasty arithmetic. So we 
we don't go to body temperature, we don't go to room temperature, we pick a temperature that gives us something nice and easy to work with. So it's minus 60 over Z. Z is going to become important as the valency of your iron. All we've got to do is know the internal concentration, the external concentration, and now I can tell you the voltage that keeps that concentration gradient of a net flux is zero. Basically, it prevents flux when you think there would be flux. There's a chemical gradient, you expect flux. But if we set the electrical gradient to be just the right size and in the opposite direction, net flux becomes zero. So what it means is we can, for a single ion species, determine how much electrical energy is required to hold net flux at zero. And here it is in words. Look, it's a measure of the electrical energy required to balance the chemical energy of an ion and keep net flux equal to zero. Despite the fact there's a big chemical gradient for it to flow out, it ain't going to do that because the electrical gradient opposes it. Now, the other thing to remember, these are real-world energies. These are voltages. So the positive and negatives I'm going to use are not number line positives and negatives. You know, minus 60 is not smaller than minus 20. Minus 60 is bigger than minus 20 because the magnitude, the 60 or the 20, the number tells you how much energy is. The positive and negative are just telling you which direction that it's pointing in. So don't fall into the trap of thinking of this like a mathematician where this is an abstract number line. These are real-world energies. And if it helps you, instead of saying positive or negative, just think east or west. 40 miles east or 60 miles west. Which is further away? It's the 60 miles. It doesn't matter which direction we went in. Yeah. So these are real-world energies. They are not abstract concepts. Okay. Can't see them. Okay. I'll read them out to you. So A is, I'll try to increase it. It's messed around as I imported it to, um, you don't have the slides? Oh, no, you don't have the slides because I don't give you these ones. Um, it, it, when I imported it with the new clicker data, it changed all my fonts and everything, unfortunately. When this counts down, I'll, I'm going to increase that just for the sake of Sonic Foundry. So the nearest potential is either the membrane potential at which there is no net flux of the ion species specified, the amount of electrical energy required to hold a concentration gradient of an ion species in steady state, the electrical energy generated across a membrane when a selective ion conductance opens in the presence of a concentration gradient for that ion species, the electrical energy required to drive net flux of an ion across a membrane or the electrical energy generated by the flow of ionic current across a membrane. Well, hopefully, you'll recognize that A, B, and C are all saying the same thing. And you do. Wonderful. 
It's all just the very same statement, but with slightly different language. So the membrane potential indeed, it's the electrical energy required to get a net flux of zero. Now, under the Nernst conditions, where we only have one ion species, that is the membrane potential that gets generated when you open that conductance, just like on the first series of graphs that I showed you. You open that sodium conductance, we generate a membrane potential. That membrane potential and equilibrium potential are one and the same thing, crucially though, because we're talking about a single ion species. That's going to change. And it's the electrical energy generated across the membrane when the ion conductance opens, again, just as we said in that first series of slides. What it is not, it is not an electrical energy required to drive flux. It's quite the opposite. We said net flux would be zero. And it's the same here. It is not the electrical energy generated by the flow of ionic current because we have no net flow of ionic current under those conditions. The net flux is, in fact, zero. So D and E ain't going to be right. Now, can I... Change the font size, I'm not sure. Can I do that? The first three green ones, yeah? The, they're all saying the same thing. The first three statements are all exactly equivalent. Yeah, I tend to uh, make right green and red wrong. That's how... I, I, no, I'm not being cheeky here, but I know a lot of the people use the... Uh, there are different systems to indicate the right answers. I tend to do it on the, on the graph here rather than put the thing here. Okay, so let's take a number and let's start working through an example here. Then let's make it semi-physiological. What we have in a cell is about 150 millimolar sodium outside and about 15 millimolar sodium inside. You should know by now it's about a tenfold gradient between the outside and the inside of the cell. So all we do in order to calculate this equilibrium potential is we plug it into the formula. Inside concentration is 15. Divide that by the outside concentration of 150. What does 15 over 150 give us? 0.1. What's the log of 0.1? Negative 1. Negative 1 times negative 60? 60 millivolts. There we go. You've done the calculation for the Nernst potential. Basically, what it's saying is plus 60 millivolts gives us equilibration and a net flux of zero for sodium, even though there's a tenfold concentration gradient. Now, that makes sense. Sodium's a cation. In order to keep it out of the cell and stop it flowing into the cell, we have to make the cell interior positive. So we already know, without even doing the Nernst equation, that we should be looking for a positive number. The other thing to remember is, as long as there's a tenfold gradient, it's either going to be 1 or minus 1 on the right side of the equation. Because if it was 150 over 15, that would give us 10. The log of 10 is 1. But if it's 15 over 150, it's 0.1. So it's always going to be 1 or minus 1, as long as we've got a tenfold gradient. So that's a nice shortcut to remember. A tenfold gradient is always going to be 60 millivolts, we just got to figure out is that positive 60 millivolts or negative 60 millivolts. Now we can do that just by thinking. We know that if a positive charge is going to flow into the cell down its chemical gradient and we want to make net flux zero, we have to make the cell interior positive to stop that flux. 
So you can actually just do it in your head without the Nernst equation, but the Nernst equation is a formal way of figuring out which electrical energy balances that chemical gradient. And this is what it depicts. This top arrow depicts the chemical gradient. It's equal in magnitude and opposite in direction to the electrical gradient. Therefore, net flux is zero. Now, let's take potassium. Do the same thing. Here we have internal potassium, about 120. External potassium, about 5. There's a 20, 25-fold gradient. So even without thinking, because the gradient is 25-fold, I know I'm looking for a number that's bigger than 60. It's bigger than a 10-fold gradient, so it's going to be bigger than 60. Now again, before I even look at the Nernst equation, just think about it. Potassium will leave the cell down its concentration gradient. But I want net flux to be zero. How am I going to convince this cation to stay in the cell? Make the cell interior negative. So I know it's going to be negative, and I know it's going to be bigger than 60. That's before I even start plugging numbers in. Well, if you do plug the numbers in, 120 over 5, take the log of that, multiply it by 60, you're going to get minus 83 millivolts. Meaning, potassium wants to leave the cell down its chemical gradient, but minus 83 millivolts inside the cell is sufficient electrical force to retain it inside the cell and prevent it flowing out of the cell and keep a net flux of zero. Now, this is where the membrane potential of most cells exist, around about minus 60 to minus 80 millivolts. Why? Because most cells have a large potassium conductance, and it's the potassium conductance that dictate membrane potential. So let's change things a little, make it a little more complex. Just now we've talked about Nernst. Nernst talks about a single ion species, a single conductance, and the membrane potential that exists because of that. Now, we can't talk about membrane potential in future because if you've got multiple conductances and multiple ion species, then the membrane potential is going to be a function of all of those different conductances. It means it's far less predictable. The more factors we put on there, far less predictable. So let's take a look at... I'm going to skip chloride because it's using the same logic. Just take a think about chloride. And we're going to move on, and we're going to think about... Well, actually, before we think about that, I'm just going to spend a little moment here reinforcing that this is when we have a single conductance, a single ion species. The other way to think about this is, look, and this is the crucial part. The cellular conductance, let's say there are only potassium channels, no other channels there. That means that the potassium channels are going to have an equilibrium potential, for that potassium gradient, and that equilibrium potential is going to dictate the membrane potential because we only have one ion species. So imagine, we've got all this potassium inside the cell, very little potassium outside the cell. If I put a, a channel, open up a channel, what's going to happen is this tiny flux of potassium leaves the cell, just as in that first sequence of slides. But remember, it's tiny. But as that positive charge leaves the cell, the interior of the cell gets more negative, more negative, more negative, until finally there's enough internal electrical negativity to prevent further flux. Now that's when we reach equilibrium. 
Now, crucially, it didn't take much potassium leaving the cell before that equilibrium existed. So we didn't actually functionally change the concentration gradient, even though I'm talking about the flux. The flux was so small that we quickly got to an internal negativity that caused equilibration. Now, if I were to take an electrode and impale that cell and measure its membrane potential, I would find that the membrane potential is exactly what we'd predict by plugging the numbers into the Nernst potential. So the equilibrium potential and the membrane potential would be one and the same thing. And the reason for that is we only have potassium channels in this cell. Therefore, the potassium channels dictate the membrane potential in that cell. Now, what we're going to go on to next is but what happens when we've got more than one conductance in the cell? What happens when there's multiple different species of ions and multiple different conductances? Then where is the membrane potential going to go? So that's what we're going to do now. Now we're going to make it, again, very simple. We're going to say semi-physiologically that there's 150 millimolar sodium outside the cell, 15 inside the cell. So we've already done that. We know a tenfold gradient is 60 millivolts. In order to keep a cation flowing into the cell, we have to make the cell interior what? We're going to make it positive. Therefore, in order to hold sodium in equilibrium, the inside of the cell has to be plus 60 millivolts. And that's what we use the Nernst equation for. So we can see here, 60 millivolts is the equilibrium potential for sodium. Now, if we reverse the gradient for potassium, if we say it's 150 inside the cell and 15 outside the cell, that would mean that positive charge wants to leave. If I wanted to keep uh, potassium in equilibrium, I would therefore need to make the cell interior negative. And again, because it's a tenfold gradient, it's going to be 60 millivolts. So, again, if we plug that into the Nernst equation, I'd find that if we only had potassium, then minus 60 millivolts would keep potassium in equilibrium. Yep. Well, it's, it's one in both cases. Yeah, it's, it's just the valency of the ion. So in, in both of these cases, they're monovalent cations. The only time that's going to change is if it's chloride, you're going to change the sign to negative one. If it's calcium, you're going to change the sign to positive two. Other than that, there's no other weird ions you're going to come across uh, using these examples. But the point is, right, what's the cell going to do? Because on the one hand, the equilibrium potential for potassium is minus 60 millivolts. On the other hand, the equilibrium potential for sodium is plus 60 millivolts. Where's the membrane potential actually going to lie? Well, the truth is, it's simply going to be weighted depending upon the conductance. Now, if we assume that the conductance for sodium is exactly equivalent to the conductance for potassium, then essentially the membrane potential is going to lie halfway between plus 60 and minus 60. It's going to lie at zero. Basically, the membrane potential is just going to be sum of the equilibrium potentials for each of the ion species. Now, that's what we've done here. So we're saying the membrane potential is one times the equilibrium potential for sodium plus one times the equilibrium potential for potassium over the total conductance, which is 2, plus 60 minus 60 divided by 2 is going to give us 0. It's going to be 0 divided by 2. is going to be 0 anyhow. But the point is, now what happens if we stick another potassium channel in there? Well, watch what happens. There's double the conductance for potassium than there is for sodium. 
So when we look at the membrane potential, we're going to weight it in favor of the potassium conductance. It's as simple as that. The total conductance is three. There are three channels. Two of them are potassium channels. One of them is a sodium channel. Therefore, it's going to be one times the equilibrium potential for sodium, which is plus 60, plus two times the equilibrium potential for potassium, which is negative 60, divided by the total conductance, which is three. Therefore, we jump to minus 20 millivolts. What you can see is, as we start to add an excess of conductance for a single ion species, we creep closer and closer and closer to the equilibrium potential for that ion species. So if I were to continue to add more conductance and more and more and more, what we find is, I'll go through that stepwise, minus 20, another one, minus 30, another one, minus 36, 20 of them, minus 54. We're creeping closer and closer and closer to minus 60 millivolts, what the potential would be if there were only potassium channels. Now, the crucial point that this is telling you, and this is a very crucial point, is it's the iron with the biggest conductance that determines the membrane potential for that cell. So it's the biggest fractional conductance that determines membrane potential. And since cells have a far bigger potassium conductance than any other conductance at rest, then most cells have a membrane potential that lies very close to the potassium equilibrium potential. Now, what would happen if I put a sodium channel blocker on there? What would happen? If I were to block all the sodium channels, what would the membrane potential now be? Beautiful, minus 60 millivolts. We would have a pure potassium conductance, and membrane potential would go and sit right at the equilibrium potential for potassium. Now, if I were to block the potassium channels, what would happen to the membrane potential? It would go to plus 60, absolutely. Now, that's it. You've actually just determined what an action potential is. It's the fluctuation of the membrane between the equilibrium potentials for the biggest conductance at that time. Job done. I can leave now. The crucial thing to remember is the equilibrium potentials we can calculate if we know the gradient. The membrane potential, in theory, I've made you think that we can calculate that as well. But the point is, there's not just two conductances. There are multiple conductances, and there are multiple other factors that lead to us not being able to actually predict membrane potential very accurately. We can say that it's going to be negative or positive, it's going to be a high number or low number, but we don't know exactly what it's going to be because there are all sorts of other electrogenic processes in the cell. There are all sorts of proteins with a net negative charge. There's all sorts of other factors that determine it. But if, if it was the simple model of just two conductances, we could very well predict what the membrane potential is going to be. Reality is there aren't just two conductances. There are lots of them. Therefore, we can calculate easily an equilibrium potential, but in order to find out what a membrane potential is, there's only one way of doing it, empirically. You have to impale the cell and measure it. Now, you could say, hey, if this cell has mostly potassium channels, I could predict there's going to be a high negative number. It's going to be close to the potassium equilibrium potential. But we can't say exactly what it's going to be without just impaling the cell and measuring it. Okay. So the key point here to remember is it's the iron has to have two things. It has to have a gradient and it has to have a conductance. 
And the iron with the highest fractional conductance that has a gradient, that's the iron that's going to set what the membrane potential is. And it just so happens that at rest, cells have a huge potassium conductance and a huge potassium gradient, and that is therefore what sets the rest membrane potential of the VM, the membrane potential, being close to the equilibrium potential for that iron. Okay, here's an interesting... How do we reset that? Why is Poland closed? Okay. Because I realized that there's a misconception because of the simplified model, there's a misconception there. So let's test that first. Okay, so the whole point of putting these choices up were to highlight that the correct answer is A and not B. And the reason it's not B is you can get a hole in a bucket, or you can get a hole in a bucket, or you can get a hole in a bucket. A hole is not a hole, is not a hole. A conductance is not a conductance, is not a conductance. You get a single channel that can have a big conductance and a single channel that can have a tiny conductance. Therefore, it's not the amount of channels that matter. It's the total conductance across all of the channels that matter, the highest fractional conductance. Looking at channel numbers, not helpful. You have to look at the total conductance across all channels. So it's answer A. It's the concentration gradient of the ion with the highest fractional conductance. It's not the channel number. I think the misconception is always looking at my slides because I add more channels. The point I'm getting at is I increase the fractional conductance. I could have, instead of adding more channels, I could have just made a bigger channel, bigger channel, bigger channel, and it would have done the same thing. Okay. When it comes to multiple ion species, you'll be thankful to know we don't have to uh, use this equation, but we have to think of all the permeabilities, all of the conductances at the same time, and there's two methods of doing it either the cord conductance equation or the Goldman-Hodgkin-Katz equation. The, the, the simple take-home message here is all we've got to do is we've got to look at the duct conductances and we've got to weight them in order of the fractional importance to the total conductance. So the point is, look, if the sodium conductance and the chloride conductance are tiny but the potassium conductance is biggest, then the membrane potential is going to be determined by the potassium. If 
the potassium is tiny, but the sodium conductance is huge, and the chloride is tiny, then the membrane potential is going to be weighted in favor of the sodium equilibrium potential. It's just a way of weighting and partitioning those conductances, either by looking at the individual conductance size as a fraction of the total, or the top term, P, is the permeability, the permeability of that ion as a fraction of the total. It's just a method of partitioning out the different conductances. So the next point is, well, that's great. We now are able to figure out what the equilibrium potential is for an ion. We can then impale the cell and find out what the real potential is that's expressed across that cell. And what does that leave us with? Are they the same? Are they different? Are we going to have flux? Are we going to have equilibrium? That's the next phase. How are we going to work out if this ion is going to flow into the cell, out of the cell, or stay under equilibrium conditions? The point here is we can calculate the Nernst potential, the equilibrium potential, and if the membrane potential is at the equilibrium potential, then that ion will indeed be in equilibrium. Therefore, the further away the membrane potential is from the equilibrium potential, the less that ion will be in equilibrium. Therefore, if you measure a membrane potential and it's way away from the equilibrium potential, there's going to be a driving force for that ion. Now, you've just got to figure out, well, is that going to cause it to flow into the cell or out of the cell? But if you measure the membrane potential and it's exactly at the equilibrium potential, you know that ion is at equilibrium. There is no net flux into or out of the cell. That's what we're going to do next. Take a break. Hey, how are you? Just give me a second.